Hey there, beautiful people, and welcome to Articulating, a bi-weekly podcast that highlights the black and brown experience at independent schools. My name is Gina Parker-Collins, and I'm an indie school mom, advisor, and founder of Resources in Independent School Education, where we focus on access, application, and enrollment in culturally responsive ways. Yay! And I'm Sam Osborne. I'm a RISE advisor and proud alum of a New York City independent school. I just completed my MBA from Wharton, and I'm now working as a management consultant. Faculty diversity. Why does it matter? And how can schools attract and retain diverse talent? Joining us today is Mr. Curtis March, Director of Upper School for the Birchwath and Lennox School in NYC. Mr. March has worked in education for over 30 years, teaching the best and brightest, including yours truly, moi. That's right, Mr. March is not only an articulating guest, but also a dear friend of mine. He's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and holds an MFA from Sarah Lawrence. Let's go. Follow us on Instagram at articulating. That's artic period ulating. Thanks for listening. Sam was really excited to have you join us today and to be our guest. And because of her enthusiasm, I am equally as excited to meet the person who had a huge impact on her independent school experience. So again, it's a pleasure. Thank you for your time today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm you know, kind of nervous because, you know. <laughs> what are you nervous about? You well, I tend to say I tend to I tend to say stupid things sometimes. So you know, I've never heard a stupid thing. Treat this like an assembly, Mister. Okay, all right. <laughs> really? Right. Yeah. Does that make you feel yourself? Better? How many kids in the upper school? I'd say about a hundred and ninety. And when I started there, I've been there thirty years. When I started, um, I was an English teacher, and there were. 87 kids in the high school. So it's much, much bigger than it used to be. Wow. So do you get nervous before assemblies? No. Okay. No, I really, I really don't. And, and you know, at, at this point, I mean, it's not because I've gotten more confident. It's because when I mess up, no one, it doesn't matter. There you go. And the same <laughs> translates here. <laughs> okay. I'm ready. <laughs> so... Wanted to invite you on because, well, first of all, just had to have you on. And also because super interested in the topic of faculty diversity, which we're mm -hmm. in our we haven't touched on it. Absolutely. Having a senior person to talk to broader topics that uh, continue to bubble up in my conversations with many of our members' schools senior men will say, um, we're glad that RISE is here to help with, you know, awareness and access and application and enrollment of black and brown scholars. Can you help us with faculty, right? That mm -hmm. always creeps up, you know? And um, so having you talk to this, I think elusive matter, honestly, it's a continues to be a struggle as it does with uh, other stakeholders at our schools, namely parents and scholars. Mm -hmm. Um, attract and to retain top black and brown uh, educators. Absolutely. We've had very little diversity among our, our faculty, you know, starting years ago. In, in the language department, we always have striven to get uh, native speakers 
of a language when they're teaching. So that that has brought some diversity into it. And, you know, over the past few years, we've taken steps to address that. Like this year, for example, we've had we've had a lot of turnover uh, in the past few years, ever since COVID struck. Uh, it, it's been, you know, hiring has been really nightmarish. And I know this is a national story and you hear about, you know, there being faculty shortages everywhere. For us, it started with COVID when we had to hire about 14 new people just to sort of help facilitate the social distancing protocols that we had in place. You know, we had to break up into small classrooms. We needed additional people on hand. We had to make sure everything was safe. So we hired a lot of people there. And where do you find these people? So how we, we go through we go through agencies. And you know, we use Manhattan placements, we use um Carney Sando, we use Educators Ally, and we use Nemnet. And NEMNET has been a great resource for us in terms of um, getting a diverse applicant pool. However, we also we also um, tweaked the language in our postings and uh, our job postings, emphasizing that we're looking for a diverse group of faculty members and that it's important to us. And I think that has. I think that's increased the number of the range of faculty who have applied to the school directly. Also, we post things on our website, uh, which we hadn't done previously. And, and so that's drawing more people too. And this year, so, so after COVID, um, there was a lot of burnout and we've had to hire new faculty every year. Um, and this year we had to hire, gosh, it seemed endless. We probably hired another 15 people this year. And about 35, 38% of our hires are uh, represent diversity in our faculty. So it's a huge percentage leap. And I think we've seen uh, an increase over, you know, the past five years we have a DEI rep in every interview now so that you know we're consciously articulating that this is a priority for us so we have a a a, a jump in the number of diverse candidates we we have and I, I really hate using that language diverse candidate yeah. Yeah, it's when you say that, um, you know, if you were to, you know, report that 38% number, what are people supposed to understand from that? I think what what I see is that we are moving toward a faculty population that allows students to sort of hear perspectives from people who are like them, you know, whether they're LGBTQ, whether they're black, brown, white, you know, Latinx, uh, we, we have faculty who look like them, who share an experience. Um, I think that's really important. But, you know, my point was, even, even though we see this percentage, if you come to a full faculty meeting, 
it's still mostly a white faculty, you know? Why, what, is you, what is your gut behind that? I mean, to state the obvious, let's, let's just state it. What, why do you think that is? We were getting mostly white candidates for a really long time. I think what we've done is we're, we're just encouraging people to apply to our school. And in, in terms of what, I don't know what the experience of an applicant 10 years ago would be uh, compared to the experience now. I also know there are a lot of job opportunities in every different field. And, you know, the decision to become a teacher, you know, for for certain candidates, they might want to work in a school similar to what they attended. So we have, you know, plenty of people, you know, white, black, everything who don't want to work in an independent yeah. school because to them that, 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 that's anathema, you know, it's not giving back to a community maybe that they were part of. They don't like what they perceive as the privilege in that community, et cetera. I think that that's a really important point. I think uh, I had contemplated a career in education very briefly. And I remember saying, maybe I would go work at a school, like an independent school. Maybe I'll do that. And an educator friend said, that's not a safe place for you. You're basically going to be working, you know, obviously these, the students, they, they're not a monolith, but from this educator's point of view, an independent school is where you teach the one percenters and maybe you give a grade. And then you get pushback for that grade, you know, why is it an A minus and not an A? And so it could be a really, you know, intimidating and and maybe even an unsafe space for um, a woman of color like me. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I don't know, I don't know whether in fact it is unsafe or just feels unsafe. I imagine it's all of those things. You know, I imagine in some places it is unsafe. It, it feels terrible. But I also think, you know, I work in an independent school. It's a privileged population. Am I doing the best I can by working in this population or should I be working in a public school? And, you know, what's kept me in independent schools is that our kids, regardless of their background, the the issues they face are real. And, you know, we have kids, and I'm sure you know, Samantha, whose lives are train wrecks and privilege doesn't shield them from that. We also, I don't know the finances of our families. You know, I'm not aware of who is on financial aid, who's not on financial aid, what kind of jobs people have, et cetera. If I do find things out, it's only incidental, you know, so we keep that separate. From, uh, I mean, the business office and admissions keeps that separate from us. There are plenty of families who who really are, you know, not in good financial shape at all, who do not have resources. We have plenty of students on financial aid or full scholarship. And um, so I think in an independent school, we're able to serve a wide range of students that that is probably wider than one might assume initially. To that point, um, and Sam, you, you mentioned the the 
question of whether or not as a, a faculty of color, would you be safe in certain situations, particularly, you know, you gave a great example. I had, I've, I've forgotten about that. You know, parents have agency in our independent schools. That's part of the privilege. Mm -hmm. um, if you take on that agency, you could challenge, you know, a grade and, and it happens quite often. And what does that feel like for a person who's among the, the numerical minority and what, what safety nets are there? Does the school have your back? But what I've noticed um, also is that independent school alum tend to understand that dynamic well enough to be really great candidates for um, being an educator. Many of them feel compelled to come back, right? Mm -hmm. And to, to, you know, to, again, to recall what you just said, um, Curtis, that there are all sorts of different type of young scholars facing different things, whether it's, you know, economic or whether it's social, you can find it right there in an independent right. school, right? These are not perfect, you know, perfect families, you know, they are real families that just have either have, you know, they definitely have a vision for what it is that they want in education. Um, and, and their expectations are high. Some of them have, you know, a ton of resources to, to assume that others don't, but in that mix, faculty of color, particularly those who are alum, are highly valued, not only from a parent perspective, but from a student perspective, too. There is something to be said about, you know, when it comes reunion time and our class, my class of 45 or so students, the majority come back and we're all, you know, uh, just so excited to see each other. Um, I think it's because the faculty, the educators, they created that space for us. They validated our feeling. You know, maybe we had missteps on the basketball court or in the classroom and you didn't feel, I didn't, you know, you never felt, you know, bad about it. You had the opportunity to work those things out. And also, I think that there's something also to be said that you know, I keep in touch with you. I keep in touch with our college advisor, Mr. Battaglia. I keep in touch with Mr. Jenkins, physical education. I keep in touch with Mrs. Fuchas, uh, who was the former first grade teacher. And, you know, nobody has the same background, but to me, you know, it's something that he said about faculty members becoming your family, regardless of their uh, demographic background. You know, when thinking about the importance of faculty diversity, it is really great to see yourself in the faculty, but it's also good to be able to turn to any adult in the building and be able to turn to them for guidance and support. I do wonder about that with white faculty. So, you know, so many of these schools are majority white educators. How does Birch approach uh, the cultural consciousness conversation with them so that they're able to be educators for all students. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's a really important point. And I have to say, I don't know what your experience was. I, I, I just don't remember who was on the faculty when you were a student in the high school. But I do know that over time, we have brought in a lot more training for faculty. We have uh, speakers come in, we have workshops about diversity and, and, and gender and LGBT 
LGBTQ issues. Um, you know, we, we have invested in our faculty gaining a broader, sensitive perspective that, that is less like egocentric in a way and fo focusing on their experience and, you know, presenting information that is really important and useful about how how they need to change the way they look at things. And I think we've been very successful in that. We have had evening workshops. We have sent faculty to training. We also send students to different events. And, you know, the one, the one thing that, uh, or not the one thing, but one thing that I think needs work is, and, and you know, there's a people of color conference that we would send our students to. And the process of getting into that has been challenging because they open up registration. You have about three minutes to register and it gets you, you get locked out pretty quickly. Yeah, that that is um, I, I want to share that that is the excitement of this type of an opportunity. And that's actually the Student Diversity Leadership Conference. That's part of, you're right, part of POCC, where the faculty and, um, and educators um, attend. Um, but I heard that I heard the process has gotten better. It's not quite three minutes any longer, but it, it, that rush is due to the excitement of people just, right. we've been waiting right. for this all year long, right? And And, you know, I think everything has been sort of thrown up in the air with COVID because you weren't having in-person conferences, et cetera. So, so now I think, you know, everything is, is starting up again and we'll see how it proceeds. But I found that when we've had people go to the conferences, what I would love to see is more information sharing when they return. Like, how do we utilize that information to improve what we do and that still that still needs work i think you know how do you share this information i part of the issue is there's a limited amount of time in the day you know and faculty have to teach their classes students have to go through to do homework they have to study for exams they've got to do all this and we also have to give them time to eat and and time to sort of step back a little bit so a lot of things get pushed to extracurricular activities and or an assembly program and figuring out how to make it all part of the daily experience and bring it into curriculum and um you just you just made me think of something because this has been um, a challenge that I've heard from other faculty members, um, regardless of their uh, racial um, or uh, how they identify. Um, but when they do attend uh, POCC and when students attend SDLC, there is such rich information. Um, and a lot of it that comes uh -huh. to them by, by way of a lot of experts. And the challenge has always been, okay, so now what? I'm back, I'm excited. And does, does my institution have the bandwidth to help me get this information out without too much more labor on my part? Because I have right. to eat and I have to sleep and you know I have to teach classes. 
Um, but perhaps there's a way, I, as a matter of fact, I just challenged um, um, an educator to share in video vignettes, almost like journaling, just after you leave an event or a, a, a workshop or a program at these events and let that live on and be of use on demand, right? Mm -hmm. And then, then the next part is, are we going to implement all that I've shared? Because that can be another part of the frustration. We get really pumped up for a weekend and then we get back into communities that have not prioritized the response to this information um, that we've invested in. So I think, you know, to your point, making use of that and, and utilizing and leveraging that a helps to attract more black and brown faculty um, and diverse faculty and to retain them because yes, my my use of time over that weekend, while it was very rewarding to me um, spiritually and emotionally, I came back with really uh, tangible information um, that could be utilized to just make this community all that it can be. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, the other thing is when you have students go on that, when they come back, I think it's unfair to say, well, you went there, so now you're the expert. Absolutely, absolutely. Unpaid labor. <laughs> we were yeah. talking about that the other day, right? Yeah, I definitely, I see it more on a faculty level than a student level. Um, and to that degree, you know, they'll, they'll work that out in their community, their affinity spaces. And I think internalizing that information just makes them um, much better to, much, much easier for them to develop as a leader. You know, yeah, right? and and I, you know, I just think that I'm uncomfortable, and, and maybe this is just me. I'm uncomfortable when um, things get relegated to certain spaces, like you know, we'll have an affinity group, which is great, but that doesn't mean the job's done, you know, and and we we have to find a way to bring it into all aspects of normalize it normalize yeah yeah I, I mean because it's just why wouldn't you <laughs> you know i mean it's a, a world where to me it seems everybody should be able to feel safe and comfortable and treated fairly and it's 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 not there now you know yeah, we're in a different space right now where yeah. even, even in our communities and outside of our communities, you know, and public schools, I mean, are, certain groups are basically saying, well, we don't want to normalize any of that. Mm -hmm. that's, 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 that's a challenge for us. And I think in attracting um, diverse faculty um, into spaces like an independent school, privileged spaces, Again, back to that whole safety piece, Sam. They want to know that they can bring their whole selves uh -huh. into the classroom, meaning that I'm going to bring books to support our learning in the classroom to the table. And, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that so far our independent schools have not decided, well, this book isn't appropriate, you know. Right. That's not there. So that is one of, you know, the... The things that I say to prospective uh, educators that an independent school, although it might not represent, you know, the 99%, um, that 1% are, you know, there's no other place where you're going to be able to have the freedom um, as an educator to teach what it is you want to teach than at an independent school. 
Yeah. Right. And it's, it's amazing to me. I mean, it's just wonderful to me, the kind of freedom our faculty have in terms of how they approach the material or the electives they want to teach um, or how they want to teach history. Um, and, and I think that's really great. You know, uh, at the same time, I'm also aware that I'm an old white man and I see everything through that lens. So, you know, I'm sure at times I have thought, oh, well, this is all pretty good when it's not, you know, uh, or when students have felt like alienated and I've thought, well, you know, it's okay. And, and it hasn't been, you know, so for me, I think, Thank you for that awareness, Curtis. Thank you for that acknowledgement and the willingness to just say sometimes it's just we it's not that we don't get it right or wrong. It's just, you know, context and its relevance. Right. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And I, I think my job is to, you know, not be complacent and not be reflective. I have to assume every day I get something wrong. And I have to figure out how to how to fix it or whatever, you know, or how to address it or how to be better or how to help other people do things. But but I, you know, I, I think people have such trust in their own perspective and there's no good reason for it. <laughs> you know, I mean, for me at this point, I feel pretty confident in how I approach things because I've had the same job for a long time and I'm still there and people still seem fairly happy with me, but I know there are people who aren't, you know, and I have to, I really have to pay attention to that. I can't be too invested in being right. I think that's a, a crazy way to approach things. So, and, Well, I think what helps is you avail yourself um, I don't know if you still do this, but you used to have candy. Yeah, you know, I have to tell you, recent developments, I used to have candy in the office, and then it became a no-candy zone. The school did, because a parent had issues with the amount of sugar we were uh, giving out to all the little kids, which, you know, had merit, I think. So we stopped. See, parents, uh, parents, your advocacy can make it to... <laughs> <laughs> a new con, a new culture, right? Like that's another. Yeah. <laughs> but but more recently, that um, that that stricture of not putting, uh, not giving candy to kids has been lifted. So I now once again have candy in my office. Now, Yay. one of the things that that has been um, a byproduct of COVID is that the community has really been sort of fractured and separated into pockets. You know, the student lounge was closed. Lockers were closed. We weren't allowing people to, you know, because the halls get really crowded and we didn't want students on top of each other as they tend to be in the student lounge. And, you know, I was concerned about getting COVID, so my door was closed most of the time. So, so there was a separateness to the community. And I, I think everybody felt that. And now those, those doors are opening and it's really nice, but it's gonna take a while 
before students realize that there's available candy in my office. I was thinking of announcing it in assembly, but I figured people would just be confused. The right time of the year with Halloween. Yeah. 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 So then how do you, um, and faculty too, because I think one thing we haven't touched on is the retention piece. Um, just, mm -hmm. you know, how do you avail yourself to the community, this growing community, and support them and just ensure their success at Birch? Mm -hmm. Well, I think first, we have a lot of faculty who have been there a really long time. We also have a lot of new young faculty and we're thrilled with that and we want to keep them, you know, so every faculty person is assigned a mentor. There is a teaching learning coordinator who also works with new faculty to make sure they know all the systems, then we'll go in and observe them in classes and offer feedback. We have really worked to improve our faculty evaluation process and 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 how we support teachers moving forward sending them to uh workshops etc and continuing education um when that's when when that's appropriate and recommended which often is you know particularly for new teachers we have a diversity equity and inclusion group um frank carnabucci who had been our head for 30 years is now headmaster emeritus and we have new uh head of school and interim head of school bill kuhn who was an upper school teacher and jeff fisher who is also an upper school teacher is working as the assistant head of school and we have janine carvin and they're you know eager to retain faculty to increased diversity in our school and, and they're really committed to it they both brought in amazing speakers to assemblies over the years that that uh, do address issues of diversity and and i think the faculty feel very comfortable with them i think they're really well liked and i think they're um really supportive of faculty and so I think that will lead to faculty retention too. you know, keeping the lines of communication open. So one of the things they did was they started a faculty advisory board. And we have members of faculty of all three divisions who now have a formal um, opportunity to present issues or ask questions, et cetera, of the administration and the top administration so that there is really a, an open formal line of communication between the administration and the faculty in a way that, you know, there's always open communication, but, you know, walking in for an appointment is different than stopping by and asking a question, you know, to make this part of the fabric of the school so that you know, faculty know they're being heard. They know it in um, unequivocally, I think is really a move forward. And mm -hmm. and we also have advisor groups. Um, we have three to five advisors for every grade. And 
We also include a learning specialist, the upper school psychologist, the dean of students in that group. And so on a, on a smaller level, we have these meetings with each group once a week. So in the high school, we have four different meetings a week where we talk about all the different students and you know where they might need support, where they don't need support, et cetera, who's doing well, who's new, who, who's struggling. And then we come up with a plan. And the advisors who are faculty members are all invested in finding solutions. They're all part of the solution, part of the solution. And so this really adds transparency to the decision-making process of the administration because the faculty are part of it. And I think that that gives them that gives faculty a, a large sense of ownership. And, and that also leads to retention. So, so clearly, um, there are a lot of resources uh, among faculty and administration to support their day-to-day -day, um, and their development as well. So we need Black educators, Brown educators, um, gender non-conforming educators, you know, uh, we, we need a diversity, we need to reflect the student body. And as our independent schools do a better job of increasing diverse student populations, we wanna keep up with our faculty and educator populations as well. So Curtis, it's a pleasure meeting you. Um, thank you for, for being at the right place at the right time to support uh, Sam and her independent school experience. I have a daughter who's now in college, a senior now actually, and her relationships with certain educators meant the world in how she navigated um, her independent school experiences as a black girl. So I know I know the value of a, of a Curtis March. Uh, yeah, I know the value of a Curtis March. So thank you for that. I'm excited to put this podcast together and let you hear it. And I look forward to um, crossing paths with you again. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. And enjoy semi-retirement. If you enjoyed this discussion, please pass it on to a friend and don't forget to hit subscribe and follow us on Instagram at articulating. That's at artic period. You lading. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>